I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 26, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 4, pages 980 to 986. Love is the foundation of Catholicism. As Jesus himself said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13:34 to 35. And by their fruits you will know them. Matthew 21:16 to 27. But love can't be defined in any way that some people like to suit themselves, any more than God or other actually real things can. A chair can't be honestly defined as a ceiling fan just because you could swing it around above your head and produce a slight breeze. It wouldn't be love of your dog to just let it roam around without a leash wherever it liked and wander onto a street or freeway and get hit by a car. It wouldn't be love of your children to also let them do whatever they liked and run out on the street and get hit by cars or eat whatever they liked and try to live on a diet of cake and ice cream. It would be indifference to them. It also isn't love for so-called adults to have no restrictions on their behavior either and do whatever in the hell they feel like doing, usually short of rape or serial killing, because they show themselves to be as irresponsible and incapable of making intelligent and moral decisions for themselves as very young children and dogs and other pets are. That is the case with these pederast and homosexual and otherwise corrupt priests, bishops, and cardinals, blind leaders of the blind, who cause themselves and those following them to both fall into the ditch. As Jesus said what happened, the cited in the Catholic Church, we podcasters of the DOLW and those who agree with us, don't even listen to these false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing except to expose their lies and fraudulence in the Catholic Church or follow anything that they have to say on moral matters. We are the Catholic equivalent against these wolves in sheep's clothing as the White Rose Society and the Red Orchestra, the Nazis' nickname for all those who opposed Nazism, were against the Nazis since they falsely and illogically assumed that all such opposers had to be communists despite their fighting in a war at that very moment against well-known and outspoken non-communists and anti-communists such as as Winston Churchill and FDR and the American and British and French allies. These wolves in sheep's clothing in the Catholic Church are akin to other analogous and story wolves, such as the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood who dressed up as as grandma after devouring her to entice the little girl to get closer to it so that it can eat her too, which he does. But both Grandma and the little girl are set free by a hunter who comes by the cottage and cuts the wolf open, and Grandma and Little Red Riding Hood come out alive, and the wolf and the three little pigs who blew down the houses of the first two little pigs made of straw and sticks, but they ran away to the third little pig's house made of bricks, and the wolf didn't get to eat them, and the wolf tried to blow down the house made of bricks, but couldn't do so after many attempts, and so finally decided to go down the chimney and eat all three little pigs at once. But they had put up 
big pot of boiling water in the fireplace, and the wolf fell into that, and the pigs put the lid back on it and boiled the wolf and ate him. These wolves in sheep's clothing are trying to devour our children, young men, and church too, but the Lord will defeat and turn the tables on them, as happened to these other wolves. Be sober and vigilant. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, First Peter 5, 8. But Jesus, as I said in an earlier podcast, is more than capable of dealing with this stuffed toy lion that has to have its string pulled to be able to feebly imitate a lion's roar and doesn't even need a bullwhip but just to crack a shoestring or piece of twine at this fraudulent beast to put it through its paces and jumping up on stands or through hoops in this toy circus in Satan's mind. And if he shows up in any of his other manifestations of serpent in the Garden of Eden, goat, Russian bear, the crocodile from Peter Pan chasing Captain Hook to finish devouring him, or any of the rest of the menagerie, Jesus is ready to drive out any snakes that snuck back into Ireland or from anywhere else, and all of these other critters too. To return to the subject from my tangent here, since I do like to have my fun with this terrible thing, to lighten things up a little bit, though I'm very serious about this matter, God could hardly be more loving of his children than we are of our own children, and not also even more than we do, tell his children that there are many things that they shouldn't be doing, and those who ignore and deny God's teachings about these matters, such as these pederast and homosexual and corrupt priests, bishops, and cardinals, prove themselves to be blind followers of the blind, while those who follow God's teachings about these matters prove themselves to be sighted followers of the sighted. That is how it held the difference between the two. Some blind are not so well-sighted, of course, still let themselves be led by the sighted, since no blind man would let himself be led across the street by another blind man when he could get himself across the street with the help of a guide dog and cane. Jesus guides all of us who would be blind except for his light. I will lead the blind on a way that they do not know. By paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will turn darkness into light before them and make crooked paths straight. These are my promises. I made them. I will not forsake them. Isaiah 42:16. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to announce a year of favor from the Lord and a day of vindication by our God, to comfort all who mourn, to place on those who mourn in Zion a diadem instead of ashes, to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning, a glorious mantle instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of justice, the planting of the Lord, to show his glory. Isaiah 61, 1-3 Say to the fearful of heart, Be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall see, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Then the lame shall leap like a stag, and the mute tongue sing for joy. For waters will burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. Isaiah 35, 4-6 
To return to my tangent of fairy tales from my serious subject here, even Goldilocks escaped from the three bears before they could take revenge on her for eating their porridge, sitting in their chairs, and sleeping in their beds, as Daniel escaped from the lion's den, and Hadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaped from the fiery furnace, showing the Lord's protection of his own. And now my reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, Volume 4, pages 980 to 986. Vatican informed of Maciel's record of sex abuse. Juan Baca, who served as head of the Legion in the United States for five years, was the first of the Maciel's victims to confront Father Maciel personally about the abuse and to report the abuse to church officials at the Vatican. His first official complaint to Rome was filed in 1978 with the assistance of Monsignor John A. Alessandro, a canon lawyer from the Diocese for the Diocese of Rockville Center, New York, where Vaca had been accepted as a parish priest. The documents sent to Rome included backup testimony by Father Felix Alarcon. Monsignor Alessandro said the Vaca case went through normal diplomatic channels and that the Vatican acknowledged receipt of the 1978 communication, but nothing ever came of the charges against Maciel. He told the Courant it's a substantive allegation that should have been acted on. Vaca's second attempt to get a Vatican hearing occurred during occurred in October 1989 when he sought a dispensation from his priestly vows to marry. In his letter to the Holy Father, Vaca laid out details of his sexual and psychological abuse by Father Maciel that began in 1949 in Cobresa, Spain when he was 13, continued for a dozen years into adulthood, and finally ended when Vaca was due to be ordained. Vaca received his dispensation in 1993, but he never received a reply to his accusations against Father Maciel. Let there be justice. Before his death on February 5, 1995, the very much beloved Father Juan Manuel Fernandez Amenavar forgave Father Maciel for sexually abusing him with the words, let there be pardon, but let there be justice. So far, there has been no justice from Rome. Official response by the Holy See to the charges of sexual abuse by Father Maciel to date have been disingenuous at best. To attack Father Maciel is to attack the church. The Legion's line of defense has not been directed so much at Maciel's accusers as it has been at Gerald Renner and Jason Berry, who broke the story in the Hartford Courant. As for Father Maciel, he has, for all practical purposes, taken a vow of silence on the matter. Spokesmen for the Legion say that he prefers to take the high road, forgiving his accusers and saying as little as possible about the accusations. Thus far, there has been no call by Father Maciel's supporters in or out of the Legion to bring the matter to trial so that each party can have their day in court. On January 3, 2005, David Cloacy, National Director of the Survivors 
network of survivors network of those abused by priests snap issued a press statement that he had been advised by that that he had been advised that the vatican had reopened its investigations of sex abuse charges against father maciel however it is unlikely that justice will be done by pope john paul ii the Society of the Divine Savior, the Colonization of Religious Orders. The Salvatorian Order was founded in Rome on December 8, 1881, under the reign of Pope Leo XIII by Johann Baptist Jordan, its first superior general, who took the name Father Francis Mary of the Cross. Pope Pius X granted the Society its first papal approbation in May of 1905. In addition to imposing the traditional vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, Father Jordan imposed, imposed a fourth vow of apostolic mission work. He based the rules and constitution of the society on the model of the Society of Jesus, Jesuits. The Salvatorian habit is black with a black cincture tied and four knots to remind the religious of his four vows. The first three members of the Salvatorians landed on the nation's shores in New York City on July 25, 1892. The society gradually shed its heavy German and Midwestern rural identification and by the end of the Second World War had become more urbane and cosmopolitan. Major changes within the society took place in the post-war era when thousands of returning GIs flooded Catholic seminaries across the nation. Even smaller religious orders like the Salvatorians enjoyed an unprecedented period of expansion and growth. Membership in the Salvatorians reached a numerical zenith in 1964 with 406 members including ordained priests, scholastics, brothers, and novices. Investitures peaked in 1961 with 11 brother novices and 44 clerical novices in training and formation. Salvatorians from the North American province served in India, China, Macau, Colombia, Mexico, and Tanzania. Tanzania. Father Steve Avella, the Salvatorian's official historian, reports that between 1947 and 1967, religious life in the Society of the Divine Savior was characterized by a period of relative stability and predictability. The basic structure of recruitment, novitiate, ongoing formation, perpetual vows, and ordination, perpetual vows and ordination was solidly in place. Exceptions to the rule were rare, said Avila. Recruitment posters and the invited men of all ages, from graduates just out of high school to older candidates with delayed vocations to leave the world and consecrate themselves to God. During the initial period of seminary formation, the candidates were vetted for suitability and readiness for religious life. A separate program of formation that did not include a formal education program was in place for men who wished to follow the vocation of a Salvatorian brother. 
Separation and isolation were the hallmarks of the novitiate during the pre-Vatican II epoch. Avella explained an overall early training for religious was a religious life was a mix of joy, tension, boredom, and excitement. Travel outside the compound was restricted during the first year of religious formation, he noted. The practice and the form of common prayer were non-negotiable elements of religious life, Avella reported. The daily seminary regimen included morning and evening prayer, time for meditation before the Blessed Sacrament, the recitation of the Rosary and the Angelus at the noon hour, and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Most meals were eaten in silence, accompanied by spiritual readings. Recreation was a communal affair. The vow of poverty was strictly enforced, and no members were permitted separate savings or checking accounts. The Salvatorian habit was eschewed only for sports and manual labor. Manly deportment was expected at all times. To the religious superior belonged the tasks of maintaining strict discipline and an esprit de corps in the house. He is the chief guardian of the observance of the rule by all members of the common household. All permissions for anything not considered routine came through the superior. All in all, the Salvatorian life, including the training and formation for the priesthood and brotherhood from the post-war era to the close of the Second Vatican Council, mirrored the standards for the religious life found in the Catholic Church the world over. Revolution, upheaval, and disintegration. The American Salvatorians reacted favorably to the call to return to the original charism of their founder and to experiment with new forms of communal living and worship and service found in the Second Vatican Council's decrees on the renewal of religious life. Perfecte caritatis and renovationis causum. The Salvatorian leadership at Mount St. Paul College in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and the Divine Savior Seminary in Law Landum, Maryland, enthusiastically threw itself behind the program of renewal. Their first task was to rework the society's constitutions and rule of life. In June 1969, a special meeting of Salvatorian chapter leaders was called to Rome, called in Rome by the general director for the express purpose of revising the order's constitution. The American delegation succeeded in ramming through its own agenda of liberalizing society's rules of governance at all levels. Under the principles of subsidiarity, much of the authority and power of the generalate the society's central governing body, wherein dominated by the Germans, was given over to provincial and local administration. The move toward greater autonomy for national officers corresponded to the increased desire of the North American province to be free of Roman influence. In the midst of the disruption to the order caused by the new radicalism and progressivism and modernity of its leaders, 
and some rank-and-file members, the North American province was hit with a major financial disaster. The province's indebtedness was due in part to its overextended building programs of the previous two decades and the failure of a speculative stock market program to produce the revenue required to maintain these programs. The Americans were drowning in debt, and neither the society's generalit in Rome or the Holy See were of a mind to bail them out. On November 3, 1970, the province filed for bankruptcy and U.S. federal court in Milwaukee. The strain of trying to maintain a semblance of continuity while closing and selling off much of its buildings and property aided, added to the instability of the North American province already besieged by growing internal dissent and division. The new model of religious life that was eventually adopted by the North American province stressed the autonomy and dignity of the individual at the expense of the demands of the religious community at large. Community where it existed would be voluntary. Not surprisingly, the Salvatorian's traditional communal life of liturgical prayer and worship virtually disappeared overnight as members left the larger formalized apostolates to form smaller, more informal communities that better served the autonomous person and his particular needs, wants, and desires. Scores of Salvatorians left the society either to marry or to find themselves. Corporate discipline, that is, the prescribed rules of the house, was not relaxed. It simply vanished, as, it, as the militant young Turks and the order demanded more control over their lives. Their demands were met. Individual initiatives, individual apostolates, individual lifestyles, even those traditionally variant with community values, were to be encouraged or at least tolerated, said Avella. Presumably, the reference to lifestyles included opening up the Salvatorian novitiate to homosexual candidates, if indeed an exclusion policy had been in effect in the past. The new activist apostolic model also embraced a ministry for gay men and women. This newfound religious identity was celebrated as a triumph of pluralism and diversity, which means which many believed would make the society stronger, a forerunner of the shape of religious life to come, Avella noted. In fact, the renewed the renewal of Salvatorian life never materialized. Instead, renewal became another word for dissolution. By the late 1990s, the Salvatorian order had virtually renewed itself into oblivion. There can be little doubt that the Salvatorian's dalliance with the homosexual collective was an important factor in the overall disintegration of the North American province, the formation of a gay task force. In February 1972, the newly created 15-member Salvatorian Commission for Justice and Peace met for the first time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to lay out the society's new agenda for social justice and human rights agenda to, and to establish individual task forces 
to implement the Commission's overall objectives and initiatives. The most controversial of these task forces was the Gay Ministry Task Force. According to historian Avella, the inspiration for this particular task force was an African-American Salvatorian brother from Philadelphia named Grant Michael Fitzgerald. Brother Fitzgerald's credentials as a gay rights activist and self-professed homosexual religious were well known in and out of Salvatorian circles. Fitzgerald was present at the organizing meeting of the Peace and Justice Commission and urged the membership to include the full range of gay rights in its campaign for human rights. The commission's Human Rights Task Force, later later renamed the Gay Ministry Task Force, was created in September 1972. In the meantime, Fitzgerald also worked with Father Ramon Ronald Wagner, SDS, the Director of Renewal for the Provincialate, to develop a series of resolutions upholding gay rights for presentation to the membership of the National Federation of Priests Councils. NFPC meeting in Denver in March 1972. Fitzgerald was also active in the Gay People's Union in Milwaukee in an effort to help those who are homosexual to become accepting of and comfortable with integrated in their homosexuality. At his September 19 to 30, 1972 meeting, the Salvatorian Gay Ministry Task Force set its goals for the coming year to develop a program of ministry to the Salvatorian community in the area of human sexuality. Specifically, the task force will attempt to educate Salvatorians and others so that fears and ignorance will not inhibit them from upholding the dignity of all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. The task force also enumerated an 11-point program that included human sexuality workshops for the Salvatorians as well as the distribution of a bibliography on homosexuality and the integration and networking of the Gay Ministry Task Force with other Salvatorian peace and justice ministries. At the 15th Provincial Chapter held in the Siena Center in Racine, Wisconsin in February 1973, the membership sanctioned Father Ramon's Peace and Justice itinerary, including the resolution that the American province of Salvatorians affirm, affirms and pledges support to its members engaged in efforts to establish a viable ministry to the homosexual community, as those efforts are outlined in the 11-point proposal of the Salvatorian Justice and Peace Commission, Commission's Task Force for Gay Ministry. With the passage of this resolution, the North American province of the Society of the Divine Savior became part of the homosexual collective within the Catholic Church. With the election uh, in June 1973 and subsequent re-election in 1976 and 1979, of Father Myron Wagner as provincial superior, the moral route of the society in the United States was complete. Father Wagner, a devotee of Abraham Maslow, as in his theories of self-actualization, did for the Salvatorians what Carl Rogers had done for the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart in California. Now, news... 
News of the passage of the Game Ministry Resolution was picked up by Crux of the News in his April newsletter, and the Game Ministry Task Force started to attract international attention. In response, the task force formulated a general mailing that announced the good news of gay liberation. Two educational modules were later developed, one on homosexuality, one on homophobia, and one entitled A Christian Gospel and Ministerial Rationale for a Ministry to Homosexual Persons, Avella reports. By the end of 1973, the task force had a mailing list of 150 names, $500 in donations, and a mandate from the NFPC to continue its work. In March 1974, the Salvatorian Gay Ministry Task Force produced a 40-page booklet, Ministry USA, a model for ministry to the homosexual community, with two appendices, a short gay bibliography on homosexuality, and a list of gay organizations around the United States. The publication was given wide distribution by the National Center for Gay Ministry in Milwaukee. The cover letter that accompanied the publication stated that the insights of the task force publication were not to be considered definitive and that the proposed model for homosexual ministry was based primarily on experimental wisdom of members of the task force and have not been fully developed. When Wagner presented the overtly pro-homosexual publication for approval by the representatives of the NFPC meeting in San Francisco in March 1974, it was rejected by the House of Delegates. Avella said that after the meeting, the impression went out that the Society of the Divine Savior was now open to active homosexuals. He also noted that there were a number of unpleasant episodes in the Washington, D.C. area when active homosexual men began to apply for admission to the order after the national publicity had received by the Salvatorian Gay Ministry Task Force. In 1978, in a report to the Provincial Synod, Father Glenn Patrick Willis, Director of Formations, Formation, complained that pressure from their own Gay Ministry Task Force had led to the acceptance of unqualified and risky candidates for a membership in the Salvatorians simply because they were homosexuals. He expressed a need for a more authoritative and formalized position on the matter. By now, discontent with the pro-homosexual bias of the Gay Ministry Task Force had polarized the entire Salvatorian community in the United States, but Father Wagner was unimpressed. Avella said that Wagner went on to dismiss critics of the ministry as being uncomfortable with a truly prophetic stance, being unaware of the changing nature of sexual ethics, and even being out-and-out homophobes. Wagner said that the task force's position did not contradict church moral teachings, but was simply an affirmation of gay civil rights. Under Wagner's watch, Father Raphael Berenger, a Salvatorian pastor at St. Pius X Church 
in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, permitted dignity to use his parish until Archbishop Weakland clamped down on the pro-homosexual organization many years later. According to Avella, despite Father Wagner's attempt to defend the existence and rationale for the Peace and Justice Commission's Gay Ministry Task Force, by 1975, it had lost its effectiveness as a change agent within the American force, within the American province. It was disbanded under the new administration of Provincial Director Father Justin Pierce in 1979. Unfortunately, this was not the end of the story, for while the Gay Ministry Task Force was formally dissolved by Father Pierce, it did not disappear entirely. It simply went underground to be resurrected as part of a new organization, New Ways Ministry, created by Salvatorian Robert Nugent and school sister of Notre Dame Janine Gramic. In Chapter 17 of New Ways Ministry, in Chapter 17 on New Ways Ministry, we will see how all the elements of the homosexual network in Amchurch that have been discussed in this section come together to move the homosexual agenda in the church ever forward. By any measure, it makes for a very chilling tale of deceit and subversion. And now I'm reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Christ the Physician, sections 1503, 1504-1506-1507-1508-1509-1510-1503 and that the kingdom of God is close at hand. Jesus has the power not only to heal, but also to forgive sins. He has come to heal the whole man, soul and body. He is the physician the sick have need of. His compassion toward all who suffer goes so far that he identifies himself with them. I was sick and you visited me. His preferential love for the sick has not ceased through the centuries to draw the very special attention of Christians toward all those who suffer in body and soul. It is the source of tireless efforts to comfort them. 1504. Often Jesus asks the sick to believe. He makes use of signs to heal, spittle and the laying on of hands, mud and washing. The sick tried to touch him, for power came forth from him and healed them all. And so in the sacraments, Christ continues to touch us in order to heal us. 1505. Moved by so much suffering, Christ not only allows himself to be touched by the sick, but he makes their miseries his own. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases, but he did not heal all the sick. His healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. They announced a mere, more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. On the cross, Christ took upon himself the whole weight of evil and took, look, and took away the sin of the world, of which illness is only a consequence. 
By his passion and death on the cross, Christ has given a new meaning to suffering. It can henceforth configure as us to him and unite us with his redemptive passion. Hebrews 6, 1506. Christ invites his disciples to follow him by taking up their cross in their turn. By following him, they acquire a new outlook on illness and the sick. Jesus associates them with his own life of poverty and service. He makes them share in his ministry of compassion and healing. So they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. 1507. The risen Lord renews this mission. In my name they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover, and confirms it through the signs that the church performs by invoking his name. These signs demonstrate in a special way that Jesus is truly God who saves. 1508. The Holy Spirit gives to some a special charism of healing, so as to make manifest the power of the grace of the risen Lord. But even the most intense prayers do not always obtain the healing of all illnesses. Thus, St. Paul must learn from the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and that the sufferings to be endured can mean that in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 1509. Heal the sick. The church has received the charge from the Lord and strives to carry it out by taking care of the sick as well as by accompanying them with her prayer and intercession. She believes in the life-giving presence of Christ, the physician of all soul, the physician of souls and bodies. There, this presence is particularly active through the sacraments and in an altogether special way through the Eucharist, the bread that gives eternal life and that St. Paul suggests is connected with bodily health. 1510. However, the apostolic church has its own right for the sick, attested to by St. James. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders, presbyters of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Tradition has recognized in this rite one of the seven sacraments. And this all of my reading for today are comments. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.